All right, so to recap right there, we're gonna begin it with the topic of symbols. What do, what do you have to say about symbols, Mr. Um, floating in space pyramid guy? Well, the pyramid itself is a symbol, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, it's so <clears throat> symbols, you know, talking loosely on just the definition of what a symbol is, a symbol is something that just represents something else. That's it. I remember reading uh, a quote from a Seth book that he stated, the universe speaks in the language of symbols and symbols can carry uh, meaning. So we can identify on one level, a very base representation of some symbolism as language. That's a very obvious example, right? Uh, different languages have different symbols that represent different characters. But even beyond the formation of language, we go back as far as uh, some of the earliest records of intelligent symbolic design. Um, we have records of cave paintings. Uh, in some cases, some cave paintings can go back as far as almost 100,000 years. Intelligent painted cave symbols on a cave. It's, it was clear that whoever created those paintings had put thought into the type of paint that they used. They were careful about the surface that they painted the paint on and the tools that they used to translate this image. And these, some paintings, just because of how well the cave was preserved or because of where it was hidden, was able to just maintain the integrity of these symbols up until present day to where our scientists were, were able to observe them. In many of these cases, we find common, irregardless of where these ancient caves are found all over the world, like different examples of, of ancient cave drawings, we find some common symbols throughout. Like we'll see stick figures of people. Well, that's obvious. It's a, it's a symbol that represents man. We will see animals a lot. You know, we'll see bison, deer, you know, different types of animals represent prey and predators too. Uh, you know, very early um, examples that we'd be able to uncover we obviously couldn't put ourselves in the place of the artist. Like, what was this artist trying to convey? You know, there's a lot of theories. Like, is this person trying to convey maybe the, um, the life that's around in this area? Like, here's, here's some food sources. Here are some things to avoid. And I was here. In many cases, you see a lot of handprints. You'll see distinctly a print of their hand with paint blown around it to kind of create this sort of stencil as maybe just as a marker of who was there. Um, I, there was a little documentary that I watched recently talking about how there are a number of symbols distinctly that appear in almost every ancient, almost every ancient cave drawing throughout the world. I wish I had that list on the top of my head. Um, but it, it's, it's like there, there are some core symbol. So, so really, you, you, you can take the idea of a symbol and you can associate, still associate it to anything. Like I could take this loop and say, okay, this represents God, because I, because I said so. And there, there are these man-made definitions. But what's been fascinating me or captivating me recently are symbols that are inherent in the universe. So we talked earlier about how like math is something that we've just discovered. And we're able to understand math through the form of symbols. Uh, we, we witness symbols just naturally occurring in our reality. Like we see uh, fractal patterns. Like we see like how a seashell grows out. We see how the patterns of uh, 
seeds grow out on a sunflower that have these type of like golden mean like fractal patterns, uh, we, we see these different examples that naturally occur throughout nature. So there's, there's information that's carried in that. There's information that's carried in these symbols. Uh, things that form in nature that's cohesive. So when I say something that's cohesive, something that's like organized, quote unquote intelligent, the way that certain crystals and minerals grow out, uh, depending on the type of mineral or crystal that's growing, it will take a specific form in terms of how, how the molecules arrange themselves. You know, if we were to pull up some examples of, um, I'll pull up a window here. Your eyes look amazing right now. They're all, they're all wiggity, huh? <laughs> they were golden when you were, there you go. That was like Gambit with the uh, yellow eyes. Good memory. <laughs> <laughs> Let me pull up some images here. Um, yeah, I think Lee just went into God mode. <laughs> I'm gonna pull up, pull up some cool examples here. Uh, Line matrices. Yeah. Crystal growth patterns. Maybe that will mm -hmm. pull up something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I want to talk. So this is going to tie into the nature of sound as well. Ooh, and there from there, uh, okay. I have some theories. Um, I'm, I'm trying to pull up here. I'll just, I'll just go ahead and share this window and we'll kind of go from there. Oh, but you have to enable sharing host. Oh, oh, hello. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, security button now. There it is. Share security. Bam. Share my desktop. Okay. Can you y'all see my desktop? Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Lots so, of uh, hold on. Can we just pause and reflect on the world that we live in? Instant yeah. access to infinite understanding knowledge perspective shared by billions of people and yet it didn't bring up the image with one click and there's frustration <laughs> uh, yeah, user error. it's always user error that's always the issue <laughs> I, I i don't have the names of these minerals on top of my head but these are how these minerals grow in nature they have these distinct edges and corners. This one is growing out in the formation of cubes. Like, wow, that's absolutely incredible. Uh, you know, we, we've all seen quartz crystals, how uh, it grows in this near perfect, like hexagonal cylinder that pops out. There are, I don't have all the platonic shapes on the top of my head, but for the most part, they're, going, they're growing into, the, into some little of these platonic shapes. We look at water crystals, which is simply mm. just ice, right? Like ice is fascinating. This is a, these are beautiful pictures here, these different snowflakes. And this is just inherent. Like why, why does water freeze in this perfect symmetrical fractal shape? So there, there, there's information to this. We don't understand it yet but there is something that this is trying to relay, some facet about the nature of reality. Whether it's, fr whether it's freezing ice or certain types of minerals that will grow out in octahedrons and what, whatever, other, other forms of platonic solids. This one, I think this is bismuth. When, like, when uh -huh. you say platonic, uh -huh. what, are you, what are you meaning? 
so no Plato, excuse. the old school, um, the old school philosopher, he had through his own uh, mathematical conjecture had discovered that uh, I'll just I'll just pull the definition. He named these various shapes platonic solids. So a platonic solid and three-dimensional space, the platonic solid is a regular convex polyhedron and it is constructed by congruent, identical in shape and size, regular, all angles. So, so these are the five base platonic solids and a platonic solid is a 3D shape where every single face of the solid is the same type of two-dimensional figure. So in this case, there are 10 pentagons and each, and each pentagon is the complete same dimension of angle and size. Uh, you know, uh, iso, uh, here, oh, you can do an animation. Icosahedron, 20 sides of a triangle. We have, of course, the cube. We have a tetrahedron, right, this guy. Uh, so we, we see different crystals. I, I don't know about these two, but these three specifically, you will see crystals kind of grow out in these various patterns. Uh, we we kind of see these patterns that exist throughout nature. Now that's kind of interesting. Why? How did Plato did discover these? That I don't know. How did anybody discover any mathematical principle? How the hell did Isaac Newton create calculus? That shit blows my mind. How did one man like? It, it's funny. Uh, Isaac Newton was actually quarantining himself during a different plague. Yeah. And while he was locked in his house, bored out of his mind, working on the, like he already discovered physics. He already kind of started the, the developing of physics. He ended up creating calculus to supplement his physics research just while he was in quarantine back in the day. Yeah. Man. It's interesting, you brought What did you create during quarantine? <laughs> I have to say, I was like, damn, I wish I could discover a new type of math in quarantine. I was been... Oh man! Say what? I said I know what Tyler created during quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> An advanced form of uh, platonic yeah. solids, uh, a combination of advanced platonic form. solids. Does no, the human form have all of those solids? Don't we have every single shape within us? In a way, yeah. I mean, like we're uh, we're based off Tick. the strange Fibonacci sequence pattern, growth pattern. You know. Not. Uh, yeah, like the, the golden mean is kind of all distributed out through your, throughout your body. Like certain parts of your body are, are almost like almost near perfect ratio to other parts of your body. I, I, don't, have, I don't have that pulled up, but fascinating, fascinating stuff. So what, what really got my gears spinning on this was over the weekend, I had rewatched a movie called Midsummer. Uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, it is very graphic it is considered a horror movie it's about a it's about a cult that lives way out in the remote nowhere of sweden um and all throughout this movie the, the director ari oster he's very avant-garde like a genius man and he, and he embeds a lot of symbols throughout his uh movies and in this case the uh the, this cult had used a lot of ancient runic symbols known as um so yeah, the Uthark is the name of uh, these ancient Nordic runes. Each uh, ancient culture has their own form of symbols, right? Well, within the, the uh, ancient belief systems of the, of the Norse, like the old school Vikings, they had their own form of magic. They had their own form of shamanism in a sense. You know, they, they had used 
they, they, they were known to use different plant medicines. Uh, they would, you know, they would uh, take the fly agaric mushroom, that like Mario looking mushroom, and they'd combine it with some other types of herbs into a concoction that they would drink. And this would cause them to have a couple of physiological effects, like they feel more energy, they feel really warm, but it also caused them to kind of go crazy and hallucinate. And they would take this sometimes before battle, like hence the term, the term berserker. They caused them to go berserk. These dudes would like wear bear skins, drink this crazy brew. They'd hallucinate, just charge into battle, ah! swing their axe. Um, and they believed that these types of runes that they developed, let me, let me find some good images here. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen these. I'll go ahead and share my screen again. These runes here, there are some ancient Nordic runes that they would use to symbolize certain things. Uh, in this case, like here, here's a chart that tried to take the English equivalent of its phonetic as well as to a numerical um, ancient Nordic runes. And I, I haven't studied in depth uh, what, what these mean. They obviously apply to Norse customs and North mythology. For instance, um, number 16, this guy, this up arrow. I do. I have seen this before, representing the god of Tyr. The god of Tyr is like the god of uh, war, in in ancient Norse culture. So like they would they would engrave this in their weapons and their armor on their ships, and they believe that it would hold or carry with it the energy of what those represented. Uh, what I had learned recently is that the Nazis. So the, we, the Nazis were very into the occult in general, and ancient uh, Germanic tribes used a type of, of, of symbology that was very similar to the Uthark, or very similar to the Norse, uh, and they would actually inscribe certain symbols um, on, on their weapons, on their accessories, on their clothing, in their, in their symbols as well, because they believed it carried uh, an extra supernatural power. Um, I, I learned this recently. Let's see if I can find this again. I, I looked it up the other night. Um, oh, yeah, here we go. Okay, can you guys see this page that I have up on Wikipedia? Yeah. The runic insignia of the Schutstaffel. So the Schutstaffel, which we know is a German SS. Uh, for those of you that don't recall, the SS were the German Nazi supergroup. You would, you would send in the SS squad if you wanted to get shit done. They were like the elite fighting squad. And uh, they, you know, they, they had this, this flag of like the, the double lightning. What I hadn't realized until just barely was that these are actual runes from ancient German Germanic mysticism. So this actually means in, in the old terminology, victory. So, it, so this, it carried kind of a double entendre meaning. This would you know, stand for Schutstaffel, but it would also um, symbolize victory, victory. Um, and they, there were these different symbols that we'd see here. So, you know, this represents death. This represents, you know, tier leadership in battle. And they would have these different symbols engraved all throughout their ranks. Um, fascinating enough. I, there, there are other examples of different cultures using symbols that carry certain meaning. And I guess where my thought process has been recently was once again, like, can symbols actually carry some type of mystical power? Can symbols carry with it some type of power we don't comprehend or don't understand? Can, can a symbol carry with it? Like whether, whether there's an understanding of a symbol or whether there's an observation of that symbol, can the symbol stand alone or stand by itself and contain within it some inherent form of power or knowledge? 
that I'm really curious about. You know, trying to understand the the nature of symbols and kind of where they stem from, what pops, the, the, the closest thing that pops to my mind in terms of a, a quote unquote natural symbol is the idea of somatics. So cymatics. Uh, cymatics is the study of sound waves, essentially, what, what sound waves visually look like. So I have an image popped up here. Um, have either of you guys ever heard of cymatics before? Yes. Heard of, not super familiar, but I've seen some really cool videos with frequencies shifting and then shifts. There you go. Yeah. There, yeah, that's cymatics. Like, this is just salt on a black sheet of paper or, or a black steel or a black steel flat surface, whatever, and it's placed on top of a speaker that's, that's, that's playing a pure sine, uh, sine wave frequency. And depending on what pitch, depending on what frequency, it creates these very intricate patterns. So when I was in uh, college learning about audio engineering, and we had kind of, I, we kind of talked about cymatics, I asked my professor like, uh, what his thoughts were, and he simply stated, this is, this is simply how, th this is the way that the air is fluctuating and moving. Wherever you see the salt is where there is a, uh, a space in between the air that's not vibrating. So wherever you see a void, that is where air, air particles are vibrating, where there is movement. Now, this is obviously just a 2D snapshot, but could you imagine this 3D popping at your face? We are able to take specific points of the frequency, such as 432 hertz, and call it a note on a musical scale. So we can assign a symbol to it. But what if there was an inherent symbol that we had lost? What if there were inherent symbols to the nature of these sound waves that like, like, like a super root language that maybe we have lost over time? Yeah. Um, oh, man. You know, the, uh, I remember there was this uh, philosopher who talked about the nature of physical reality and, he, and his argument was that, you know, sound is the basis of everything. Uh, which which ties into like the whole string theory, the unifying theory thing. It's everything starts with sound, which then converts into every other sound wa or a, a wavelength that we can perceive, including light. You know, it, mm. he, he used the example of like Genesis in the Bible, you know, and God said, let there be light. So there was an, you know, there was, there was an, a piece of audio that announced the light. Um, interestingly enough, we, uh, you know, we, we have all of our solar system, like our solar system and many other solar systems within our galaxy, all galaxies, which kind of from what we can observe is this example of organized, this large, the largest celestial body we can find in space to, to our understanding at this point. Galaxies are the largest celestial bodies we can find. But galaxies are, yeah, so we, we, see, we see this shape, and the reason why it is flat like a pancake is because that is the force of the gravitational pull within a supermassive black holes in the center. Well, we've been able to identify that these supermassive black holes, these large giant black holes that cause all these different celestial bodies to rotate around it, it actually emits a frequency itself. It is emitting an extremely, extremely deep tone. I think, uh, let's see if I can Google it. I, this, I read this years ago. Um, I'm going to say it's an F. It's a B flat. At least ours is. is. It? Yeah. Supermassive black hole. Here we go. 
So sound waves 57 octaves lower than middle C are rumbling away. Oh, middle C? Wow. I think each different supermassive black hole carries a slightly different pitch. Let's see if I... Earlier observations revealed the prodigious amounts of light and heat created by black holes. Now they detected their sound too. In musical terms, the pitch of the sound generated by the black hole translates into the note of B flat. So I read, I read that somewhere. 57 octaves though, lower than the standard C. So that's, that's pretty damn, that's a pretty damn low pitch. Fast, like, why? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of bizarre. Um, what does that yeah. sound like? What does that actually sound like? Uh, so we wouldn't be able to hear it with our human ears. It would be a frequency so low that we just... So we can hear down to about 20 hertz, right? Uh -huh. 20,000 hertz down to 20? Yeah. How, where would it be on the scale of hertz? That's a darn good question. Um, let's Does see. Dr. Google have an answer? I know, right? Come on, Dr. Google. Dr. Google always has the answer. It's asking the right question. I don't know how to phrase the question. I can uh, find it. Yeah, 57 octaves lower than middle C frequency. The song of a distant black hole. <laughs> so then Lee, separate from this with the cymatics that you were showing those images, it seemed like they were showing a very zoomed in version. Mm -hmm. Those patterns, repeat infinitely out? Or infinitely they... out, we don't know. Uh, cymatics is a, a study that's still kind of in its infancy. There's not much experiment, at least from what I've researched, there's not much, not, uh, not much done into what it is. Maybe, maybe there's some newer research that I haven't come across. Um, I, I haven't seen examples bigger than, than these like YouTube displays, honestly. So the definition. I wonder why. How come people aren't just taking like an entire table, you know, a table right. by table yeah. plate? Maybe you we just right. take much more um, uh, lower frequency in order to get the vibrations to, tr to transfer through. What'd you find, Grayson? Uh, it said 250 hertz, but I think it's lower than that. Give me a second. That would be totally audible. We'd be hearing that. It's actually mm -hmm. higher than most subwoofers. Yeah, so it's a black hole binary system, though. So it's two black holes. There is no specific number of hertz in an octave. An octave re represents the doubling of frequency, hence 20 hertz is an octave above 10 hertz, which is a 10 hertz change, but 2000 hertz is an octave above 1000 hertz, <laughs> which is, so it's basically 57 times past middle C. 57 times past middle C. Yeah, but an octave doubles. So, okay, for instance, um, let's see. So, wow, okay. Um, there, there's a way to do this, but I'll have to pull up the calculator. Yeah. So Where's middle it? C is two, two 261.63 hertz. But that's the question on the math. Are you doubling it every time? Uh, you, you are, you're uh, timesing it by 0.5. You're having it, having it to go, to go down an octave. Uh, yeah. I would cut it in half. So, um, so if so I divide that, this by two, an octave, power? huh? What power would that be? Uh, shoot, I just saw it. I just saw it. Um, I don't know. I'm actually doing it manually by calculator right now. Are you? <laughs> yeah. You know what? This is the kind of stuff we ought to just leave in. What? Are you, Lee, are you going to do it 57 times? Uh-huh. I'm already like What are you using through? So Share your screen. Share your screen. Having, 
whatever that number is, just do that number times 0.5 to the 57th power. I don't know how to do 57 power on the, on a simple Mac calculator. Hey, where's my scientific at? Oh my God. Wow. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to share my calculator. <laughs> I took 260.1, whatever the frequency of middle C was, and I divided it by two, um, 57 times. So point zero 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 two hertz oh wait a second so you're telling me we can hear down to 20 hertz 20,000 hertz to to 20 hertz and a black hole is speaking at the frequency of that decimal point yeah so well, that would be like the slowest, so lowest. One, two, three, four. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Um, this would be a million, billion, trillion, quadrillion. Okay. So I don't know what one more zero on top of that is. I guess, ten, yeah. So 10 quadrillion, it would take 10 quadrillion seconds to pass. Uh, what? 10 quadrillion seconds to pass for us to hear one, one wavelength of this black hole. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 10 quadrillion. Oh, man. Is that why people uh, get sucked into it? <laughs> probably. <laughs> so if we were to multiply this. But by, Lee, where is the other side of the black hole? What goes huh? in, right? It goes down the drain, Grayson. Dude, who the hell knows, man? You sent That's us the, the video. What happens with the black hole? Where do we go when we go through a black hole? Where would something go when it goes through a black hole? That's a good question, buddy. That's a, that's a really good question. They're trying to figure that out right now. <laughs> There's a lot of theories. Um, obviously, you've heard about the white hole where everything gets shot out the other side. Um, another theory is that it kind of leads into more um, universes, or you could say simulations. Um, God, but essentially what's interesting about a black hole is that one of the basic laws uh, of physics, nature, is that energy is never, cons uh, it's always conserved, it's never destroyed or created, it just goes from one state to the next. And so when it comes to black holes, the idea that something gets stuck in that, you know, that gravity well, and that energy just sits in there and eventually everything's just going to get sucked in, because eventually what's going to happen is that these black holes are just going to get bigger and bigger. You know, and they, one theory is that it'll be a giant supermassive black hole that'll eventually fizzle itself out or they'll all fizzle out at a smaller rate. But what's interesting about that is that it still doesn't answer the question of where's all that energy going, where's all that mass going, right? Because if you suck something into a hole, right, this warping of space time, does it all get condensed down into a singular point? And what is that? And they're starting to look at it and they're thinking that the physics actually changes. Mm -hmm. But how does it we don't know because we can't see past the event horizon. We can't, we can only theorize, right? What is the event horizon? So it's the edge of the black hole. So it's the last bit before you start getting sucked into the black hole. Hmm. It's kind of the edge of space time, kind of the cusp. If I'm going to describe it correctly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, some, it's some interesting stuff. Actually, let me, let me look up something really quick. Yeah, at this point, it's all, it's all hypothetical. 
what happens past the event horizon. But we know that black holes get off, um, give off, I think it's black body radiation, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. Hawking radiation. Yeah, that was a big thing with Stephen Hawking. So that could, that could essentially, uh, Hawking radiation is black body radiation that's predicted to be released by black holes due to the quantum effects near the black hole, black hole event horizon. So essentially, I mean, I don't know if it answers though the question of whether or not energy is conserved or not. If it, if black holes are still violating the laws of physics, I mean, they're not because they exist and we know they're there and we're just trying to figure out what they mean. But what is happening to all that stuff that gets sucked inside? Is it being released as that energy? Or is it getting transported to another reality? Is it creating a whole new universe? Is it just a giant, like, interdimensional straw for a cosmic entity that's just sucking stuff through, like Galactus, because it's hungry? I don't know. I've always, I, I had this weird thought years ago that maybe, like, black holes are kind of like cosmic beings' way of making, like, USB ports to store information in a strange, strange, weird way. But I don't know. It's fascinating, though. I mean, to think about something that sucks in matter. Well, it's just so massive. It's it's that the fact that once you get enough, like so, essentially, like a a star could do that. You know, you have yeah. enough mass to warp space time enough to where it actually collapses in on itself and it stretches and becomes this, you know, point. And that's that. And to me, that's it's just it's fascinating. Yeah, they talk about like once once all the stars eventually burn out, we don't have any more stars anymore. If there is some sort of civilization or life existing, they talked about actually using black holes as an energy source. They could actually be a really good energy source, or using black holes to actually propel a craft. It's called a hmm. black hole drive. Let me let me look that up. Yeah, black hole extra. drive. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Hold on. Black hole starship. It's a theoretical idea enabling interstellar travel by propelling a starship by using a black hole as the energy source. What would you do with a black hole if you determined that it led to another dimension? Say what? If a black hole was, I like your analogy of a straw. Yeah. Right? We've talked about layers of the soul and potentially over souls and, um, you know, higher forms of connection that are beyond what, uh, you know, our traditional five senses pick up. But if it was yeah. something that we could understand and just say, oh, it's just like, you know, uh, when you go to a water park, you slide down, you can hop into this black hole. It has yeah. water running through it and gravity that's helping you to go out to the end. And then all of a sudden you just appear in this new place. What would you yep. do if you found out and we had the technology, we had the capability of going into a black hole, but no one's done it yet. Would you actually go? Would I do it? Yeah, would you be the first person to jump into a black hole and say, Wee! I think if I had had children at that point, passed on my genes, I'd give it a try. Yeah, I'd Ooh. give it a go. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay, so I thought it was going to go the opposite. I thought if you had kids, then you'd say you wouldn't go. <laughs> no, 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 you got to go. I, I kind of have a rule, like, for me, like, if there's a chance to, like, go to Mars or step foot on the moon, even if it's dangerous, I, I just think to be the first one of, like, my family or someone in my kind of, like, clan, I guess, to do that. And sometimes I think the risk um, or the, the reward outweighs the risk on that. You know, it's like, well, what do you do with your life? What's a life? It's a, you know, it's a finite amount of time. You might live 20 years. You might live 120 years. But what do you do with it in that time? 
brain, you know, and if you get a chance like that, I say take it. I say take it. Lee, what's your take around this? Whether you uh, had kids or not would be a defining moment of whether you would yeah. go or not. And that yeah. we have this finite experience of time. Yes. And so why not be the first? Why not push the envelope? Feel free and elaborate. So a couple of things for me, like, here's the thing. If I had kids, right, I would wait until I was an old man to do it. Um, because once I started getting closer to the black hole, time's going to go fast, like relative to me. So my kid, you guys have seen Interstellar, right? Yeah. Once I get to that black hole, my kids, there's a high chance that my great grandkids would be dead by the time I got inside that thing. I don't know exactly about the warping of space time, but it's a lot of time's going to pass. So, you know, might as well be an old man, be a grandpa and do that. I should have specified on that. I'm not saying like I'm going to have a kid jump ship and <laughs> not what I'm talking about. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, I would totally go. But uh, there's there's definitely some things to consider before making the trip. You probably most likely would get spaghettified where, you know, time and space stretches out and our bodies aren't really made for that. You can put a suit around you, but if space and time is warping and your cells are getting pulled apart on a cellular subatomic level, I mean, yeah. <laughs> the good news is your nerve endings would probably come apart so fast that you wouldn't even feel anything. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, some one of the hypotheses out there is that with the white hole, since it's spewing stuff out instead of taking things in, it's an opposite universe where essentially time goes backwards. So you might be running backwards and slowly turning into a fetus. You know, and the starship that you come through might slowly devolve into all the elemental stuff within it, you know? And you actually, that's, oh man, that's a weird idea. Yeah. Everything's evolving and going backwards, you know? everything or uh you make it through maybe it's a einstein rosen bridge and you make it through and you're fine and you're in a whole other reality but then who's to say the laws of the, the laws of physics are the same right so you get over there and let's say something's different about gravity like maybe there's no or the higgs boson you know essentially doesn't exist so essentially you just poof into nothingness because now your matter has no what is it it's the, the glue on that's what it is yeah has no gluons to hold everything together. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff to consider. I mean, most likely you're, you're not going to, one, you're not coming back for sure. And two, you're very likely going to die instantaneously, but I'd still do it. <laughs> <laughs> what is the Higgs boson? So, bad particle. Hold on. Let's actually so let call it bad. Is it an immoral particle? What? It's just a particle, buddy. They hypothesized it and yeah, the Higgs boson. Okay. Yeah, it's an elementary particle in the standard model of particle physics produced by the quantum expectation of the Higgs field. So, so for example, like to understand what the, um, a, a good idea of like the Higgs particle is essentially, um, like if you, you, you guys know what dark energy and dark matter, I mean, nobody does, but like kind of heard about dark energy and dark matter. Yes. Yeah, but feel free and describe your perspective. So essentially what, what I gather, I'm going to keep it simple for dark energy and dark matter is that you have these galaxies, which we saw a picture of earlier and what's holding that galaxy together, right? You have all those stars sitting there and they all sit there and they have their gravitational fields. But once they did the math, they're like, okay, what's holding this thing together? Right. What is, what is that? And that's what they think that dark, dark matter is right. Holding these big giant objects together, gigantic, ginormous, can't even fathom how big they are. 
but then they're starting to move away from each other really fast. Some of them, I think faster than the speed of light. I'll have to double check that. But they think there's a supposing force and that might be dark energy. And why they call them dark is because they don't interact with light and we can only really see their gravitational effects through how everything's being moved. And we know there it something has to be there because it doesn't account for the, the mass that we see and the movement does not account for that movement. So what's interesting about the Higgs boson is what we think is like normal matter that we see stars, you and me, the planet, the cell phone we're talking through right now interacts with this Higgs field. And they think that dark energy and dark matter don't for some other reason. And they don't know why, and they're still trying to figure it out. And I really think the discovery of gravitational waves back in 2016 is going to shed a lot more light on that. But we're going to have to get better instrumentation. It's just going to take but mm -hmm. thought process on it. Essentially, like if you look at the Higgs field, like let's say it's a party, right? And there's all these people in the party. And let's say Beyonce walks in. All those people, all those little Higgs fields are going to go right towards Beyonce. And Beyonce, she matters, so the matter. And then the dark energy and the dark matter on the outside of the party that you don't see in the shadows, that's kind of what's holding the whole party together. Anyway, that's a weird analogy. But anyway, um, yeah, I guess that's... I guess it's actually a pretty good one. It's, it's gravity, it's actually, right? Actually, a scientist, actually, I forget who it was, but I read it on their paper and they were talking about that and used that exact analogy for that. But so the Higgs field interacts with matter our matter that we are aware of you know, dark energy and dark matter. They could be completely something different, something completely tangential, but we do know they don't interact with the Higgs field. So that's science guys. That's science. Lee, what, what's your perspective here? On what specifically? Uh, the Higgs field, um, black holes, white holes, uh, antimatter, dark energy. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's, I, there, there's so much speculation and thoughts on it, and it, there's, there's so many different directions we can go. I, I don't even know where to start. Well, well um, we started this with the subject of symbols. Yeah. So the symbol of darkness, for example, um, you know, it may have been a symbol of void, but what you were describing earlier is actually where the sand ends up with the um, cymatic scale is actually... Uh, isn't that in between? Isn't that the silences? Um, if by silence you mean devoid of energy where the air particles are oscillating or moving, yeah. Which is kind can, of strange. Can I add into all this? Yes, please. Unless anybody would like to talk more, because I had a bunch of stuff I wrote down when Lee was talking earlier. Please. Really, we're kind of circling back around. So, Lee, you talked about like, uh, um, Oh, Newton inventing calculus when he was basically quarantined, which is a very interesting, very interesting idea. I don't, do you guys know who Archimedes was? He created a good lever. He did. He did. And he also, he invented kind of the math to do volume. Essentially, if my memory serves me right, and he was deuce whether or not someone's crown had gold in it or had lead and someone was messing with the king. But aside from that, he was actually on the verge of doing, um, whatchamacallit, he was going to do calculus. And then he got murdered because I believe he was Greek and the Romans invaded. And he, I think he came up with, give me a second. I think he did pi. I'm not sure. Give me two seconds. And I'm going to write it. I think he's the one who did pi. Yeah, he invented pi essentially. Yeah. Archimedes used Pythagoras' theorem to calculate the side of a 12 gone from the hexagon for each subsequent double in the polygon. Yeah. So he, this guy was, this guy was a big time mathematician. He was essentially on the verge of doing, um, 
calculus. And then he got, he got murdered, right? Romans came in and they killed him. He's drawn circles on the wall. And they killed him. And then so about what? 1,200 years goes by. And then you get Newton. It's like 1,200 years go by. And then you get Newton that's inventing it. You're talking about symbols. And you're talking about, you know, those, those ice crystals or crystals in general. Any sort of thing that's forming out of the ether, out of nature. And there is this pattern. You know, the symbology and what's really interesting to think about, if you think about that mathematics is the language of the universe or it's a language we use to describe the universe, right? And if you think about there's a 1200 year gap between these two gentlemen and there was work done before that was built upon and they're both kind of tuning into this universal, you know, the universe, what's going on, the basic fundamental forces, understanding how to navigate that. So given enough time, eventually that, that knowledge, that understanding starts to unfold. And if that stuff's already there, existing in nature, in time and space, then it's only a matter of time till we discover that. And you had talked about um, like a root language, you know, like mathematics could be the root language, or maybe 500 years down the road, we're like, eh, we use mathematics, now we use this, right? We have AI, mm -hmm. I don't know. But essentially, if you think about it, when you go in now, we're going to go a little bit tangential. When you go into a video game, right? I remember playing Half-Life as a kid. I loved Half-Life. Great game. Me too. Yeah, okay. That was my yeah. era. Yeah, yeah, totally. So did you ever type the codes into the console? You know, if you need a crowbar, a crowbar pops up in your hand, you know, give crowbar. You could do God mode. You could do all these different things, but you knew the right words to type into the console, right? And you could, you could have yeah. it. Talking about that re-language. Now let's take a step back, right? What if we are in a simulation? What if there is a root code? I like that line of thinking. Yes. What it, and I, yeah, I wanted to say this before, but I didn't want to interrupt. So what if there, what is that? And even if it's not, and you talk about that black hole being, you know, 57 octaves below middle C, that might be a root language. What is that? Root and code. You talk, yes. You talk about, you know, the, um, God, I'm so glad I wrote, took so many notes. Um, Somatics. Well so if you think about somatics, that's, that's a pattern in itself. You can see those, those uh, patterns within the sound waves. Now think about the same types of patterns within gravity waves. And like I just said, we just discovered back in 2016, gravity waves, two supermassive mm -hmm. black holes with each other. And that's a whole new spectrum. And there's all these spectrums. It's all these patterns. So eventually I think there is, I think there is a base somewhere. There's some sort of a base, a root language, you know? But it may be, yeah. But as we know, just like these galaxies are going away from each other based on unknown forces faster than the speed of light, maybe the answers are evading us faster than the speed of thought because mm. as we're pushing it out there, we're pushing, we're pushing against the expanse. So, and I'm, I'm starting to get, you know, parapsychology and, you know, different tangential thought on that. But, um, yeah, I mean, you could, you could really, I mean, I'm, you can get some really deep, crazy thoughts on that, but that's kind of what I was thinking about when you guys, when Lee was talking and Tyler was talking, you guys were saying that I'm trying to think if there's anything else that ties in there, but basically I think, I think there is a root, like, you know, Tesla, Nikola Tesla talked about one day we'll plug in our machines to the basic, you know, you know, um, fundamental forces of the universe and power everything. We'll plug yeah. in the and I think we're slowly, I really think we're slowly doing that. I think we're doing it technologically. I think we're doing it um, biologically, you know, and even spiritually in psychology, you know, from a psychological perspective as well. Um, 
but yeah, uh, even solar wind power, like things of that nature. And, and Nikola Tesla was uh, sending electricity through the air, right? Yeah. I mean, we see it in lightning. So obviously it yeah. exists, but to be able to create a conduit, a channel through that coil. Yeah. Pretty incredible. Lee, yeah, totally. yeah. what are your thoughts right now, buddy? Well, I was trying to find an old article that I pulled up, uh, a recent one about, you had you, mentioned um, Bose-Einsteinium con condensate, which oh, is the, yeah. the fifth state of matter. Uh, and this talks about how they've been able to conduct tests on um, small samples of Bose-Einsteinium condensates in space. They were able to replicate um, this experiment in space where gravity is not as effective, just to see how it behaves in a near zero gravity space. And what they were trying to do with this experiment is understand how the macro forces such as gravity uh, can influence uh, fifth, the fifth state of matter. There was one, there was one specific sentence that I, I was trying, I've been trying to find in this. How, how you create this fifth state of matter is taking these uh, small particles and arranging them in a way uh, with, with zero entropy. So there, there's, there's no heat. There's no heat at all. It's, it's at zero Kelvin, which is, which is basically a state of, like, it's, it's frozen. And by arranging these protons and electrons in a, specific, in a specific pattern, they're able to interact with each other in a way that creates this, this fifth state of matter, this this boyson and condensate um, and it they're able to observe how it behaves on a quantum level and I, I guess from what they've been trying to pull out is how this sort of applies to interactions within dark energy and dark matter um, I can't find the phrase right now shoot I, I think what I'm going to do from now on, when I start reading science articles, I'm going to start copying and paste the, the texts that are like, oh, shoot, and then bring it up for these future conversations. Um, yeah. But no, I, I, I love what you said about root code. I was, I was trying to find the right vernacular to describe this, but yes, root code. And this idea that, you know, this, this reality is indeed uh, a projection, right? Or, or it's a simulation. In, at least in this reality, in this dimension, may, maybe different dimensions have different root codes, but there has to be one that applies applies to us. And what is that? Are are there symbols that speak to it? I don't know. That's a mystery right now to us. We're almost getting into magic. Yeah. But. No. No. Really. Honestly, like the ma you know magic. I, I was thinking earlier about the concepts of automation, right? Uh, we're, we're increasingly growing into this world that's trying to create more and more forms of automation. And why not? Like automation is making our lives easier. It's making it more streamlined. It's freeing us as human beings to do more complex and more interesting, fascinating stuff. You know, a simple concept of automation would be having a smart home. You can, right now, the technology exists because like I, I work in this field. You can have your phone with a specific app and your credentials saved to hit this trigger to where, uh, depending on your GPS location, if you get within a certain proximity of your home, you can have the AC kick on and cool your home to a certain temperature. You can have certain lights turn on. Uh, you can have uh, smart shades like pull up or, pull, or go down. Your entire house can reset itself based off of its proximity because of a rule that you set. And this is done through coding coding, which is a form of symbols. The idea of magic, 
I like to think is maybe tapping into this concept of the root code. Like maybe you know a certain symbol that creates a certain frequency that causes a certain effect, such as heating up a water molecule or something. So what, what if magic was being able to elicit these root codes that affected physical reality? I don't know. It's fun to think about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, can I elaborate? Yeah, please do. Okay. So there's a kind of a little tangent I want to go on. You had talked about Bose-Einstein condensates and you're starting to get into superconductivity, right? Mm. And so people that are listening to this, um, superconductivity is essentially, it's a, another state of matter like Lee was talking about. What's interesting about it is normally you would have to, in order to get these properties to take place, normally you would have to cool this thing to absolute zero. Why they call them superconducting is the fact that they found that let's say it's a superconducting type of wire, right? So normally you have electricity going through a wire and there's a little bit of resistance, right? If you think about it, if you think about what resistance is, it's vibration. Vibration creates heat because these electrons are trying to move through this maze, right? You think of it as a maze. And if there's a lot of vibration going on, these electrons are having a hard time and sometimes they get absorbed into that vibration and become heat, more vibration. With superconductivity, that vibration stops but normally you'd have to have absolute zero taking place for that to happen now what's interesting is that these things are still getting cooled with liquid nitrogen they're still like negative 150 110 i forget exactly but they're way warmer than absolute zero but the resistance goes boop and it drops off so now those electrons can actually travel without impedance zero resistance right similar things like with with magnets, they have superconducting magnets, right? And they exhibit this property called the Meissner effect. Normally, if you have a magnet on top of a magnet and you try to balance them, they're going to flip over. The mm -hmm. Meissner effect, when you take these little little pucks or whatever shape you shape it as, and you cool it with liquid nitrogen, as long as it's cool, it will balance on top because it's a, attracting and repelling at the same time, right? So trippy to look at. But what's really interesting to think about is that we make these materials from materials we find on earth and they're essentially magic right but what's interesting to think about too is that if you think about that vibration that pathway there is a geometric structure because they're they're always mm -hmm. trying room temperature superconductors i don't know if you guys have ever read about it but that's the holy grail we reach that yeah it changes everything you're talking computer at computing you know buildings infinite energy yeah yeah so, exactly and so, but that's also magic. And you talked about a lost root language. You are tapping into the funnel forces of nature. You are learning how to bend nature to your whim and do these really magnific magnificent, interesting things. So is that magic? Is that a root language? No. Now you might, now to actually have a root language and actually speak something, there, there could be. Um, but I think what we have now with science and mathematics, I think that's the closest thing we have, you know, aside from unless we understand like what consciousness is and maybe there's more to that. And maybe, you know, consciousness is completely wrapped up. And I think it is, but to actually prove that consciousness is wrapped up in actual space, time and reality in some shape or form where it's actually interacting with it, that would be a very, very big, uh, a very big find. Um, but yeah, man, I think it's fat. I think it's fascinating. And one thing I wanted to add to really quick, um, you talk about VR, right? Virtual reality. Mm -hmm. Eventually mm -hmm. we're all going to be plugged in. 
and you know there's going to be cheat codes. So maybe we're building the reality to where we can do cheat codes, right? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different ways we can go with it, but it's, it's fascinating. Good topic, man. Symbols. Good, good choice, Lee. Thank you. Yeah, I wish I knew more examples of, of other ancient cultures and their use of symbols. Yeah. Symbols, symbols. Even right from the beginning, I mean, you talked about the Mayan calendar and um, the, uh, what you call it, um, you know, it's circular, it's full of symbols. Um, it all had to do with the signature frequency. The names escaped me at the moment. It's like episode two, maybe three. Mm. Signature frequency. Yeah, that, that was conversations with the soul. And so this was like the physical um, like print of the soul. Mm. And so the Mayans had put it into a, a circular um, pattern in their symbols all over it. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if the Mayans themselves had integrated any concept of the signature frequency in it. Uh, the signature frequency we, we were talking, this is I think from episode one, it was just a term that I used to describe um, your unique frequency of consciousness. Uh, mm. I, you know, I, I subscribe to, this, to the belief that consciousness is just an energy waveform and that the body and the brain is just a receiver, like a, like mm. a radio antenna. So even if you destroy the radio, the signal still exists. Um, you know, like, and every single unique individual has their own signature frequency. And mm. it's tuned to a specific receiver which is your body which is dna so dna is in sense like your code that allows the dna is the is the code that builds out the receiver that allows you to in, to receive or pick up on your quote-unquote signature frequency that's unique to you which makes me really curious about the idea of cloning like if you create an, a near exact clone even on the epigenetic level what happens does that person just have the same exact personality? And I don't know. That, that's they, a question we can't answer right now. I don't think they could, though, because with epigenetics, that's the whole point is that you can... No, I, I'm saying if you created a clone even down to every epigenetic, every epigenetic marker. But like, how like in this moment, Is it thought one of the things that, you know, activates our genes? Yeah, it does. So your, your genes are constantly kind of, you're epigenetically kind of flipping on and off in the moment. But I'm saying if there was a way to clone you exactly, if there was a technology that took a complete like quantum scan of my state of being right now and just popped out a copy just Transporter. in this moment. Yeah. Like would, would we like, would that other bizarre, like would that merely like, would we be, would, would we be saying the same shit at the same time? Like, you know what I mean? Like, would, like would, would we both be tuning into the same frequency because the receiver is exactly the same? Like, would we end up just being like, whoa, Lee, if like, say that the same, who, who the fuck knows? I don't know. That, that's neither here nor there. Because um, I think if you took two people and you separated them, I think, you know, one was on one starship doing one thing, another one's on another starship talking to other people and you separated them, went opposite directions. I think they'd have completely different lives. Yeah, now they might same genetic characteristics there was an episode of star trek that had this it was william Riker, number one there's like some ion storm and there's a version of him that comes back to the ship and another version of him that got stuck down there for six years in like a time warp Whoa. And at the end, of the end of the episode they had to part ways one stayed on the ship and then one you know went but you couldn't you know you couldn't really tell aside from their difference in spatial experience right one was down there and one was up yeah was i guess it would it would just be a split. Like maybe, maybe in the beginning we'd be exactly the same, but in time. Well, yeah. if you think about 
but think about this. If you, you talk about multiple realities, right? There's multiple, yeah. versions, you know, there's multiple versions of me where I do this or I do this a couple of times. And then I have a completely different infinite versions, right? If that's a thing that we're believing in, then to have someone on the same physical plane with the same characteristics as you, it's just a, it's just a copy, you know, they're their own thing. They're their own being, but they're not you because your experience is in here, right? Yeah. And I guess I would like, and if you even tie in the idea of how two particles cannot occupy the same space in the same time, even just by physics, there's no way it'd be the same Lee. I would just be curious, like this, this is just kind of talking as a thought experiment about the nature of consciousness and the signature frequency. Like if two quote unquote biological receivers were tuned into the same frequency, like how parallel would they act until they stop acting the same way? I don't know. It's uh, yeah, that's a weird thought. Um, we should, we should have another deep dive on a future, uh, future episode on simulation theory. Mm. Really go into, I'll, I'll do some more research. Say what? Yeah, it does. There's a bunch of black hole though. The big thing for simulation theory, sorry to interrupt you, Lee, but big thing for simulation theory, um, I forget the guy's name. He's like this, he's the bad boy of physics, this older dude, but he talks about how simulation theory actually relates into what's going on inside a black hole. Really? Yeah, yeah, yes. But it's it's an interesting it's an interesting topic, simulation theory. Yeah. It really is. I'll have to just I'll have to pull some old articles myself. You guys uh, watch Rick and Morty at all? Oh yeah. Okay. What about you, Tyler? You Rick I have and Morty? not. Okay, so just I'm gonna break down this little episode really quick. So what happens because we're talking about simulation theory? There's there's Morty, little boy, and then there's Rick, right? And they go to this intergalactic, it's essentially an arcade, right? And they play this game called Roy. And yeah. so, so Morty puts on this virtual VR helmet, and all of a sudden he's being born, right? And he lives a full life as this guy named Roy. Ends up being <laughs> quarterback, has a family, survives cancer, ends up working in the, his wife's dad's carpet store, and then he falls off a ladder, and then he goes... Game over, and then <laughs> Rick r rips the helmet off of Morty, and Morty has no idea. He's like, "Where's my wife? Where's my kids?" He's like, "Dude, it's just a game." And then Rick puts on the helmet. Now he's playing Roy, and all these aliens start gathering around because Rick starts gaining all these points, and then they start going like, "Oh my god, he's going off the grid! He doesn't even have a social security number. He's going for it." It's basically like if it's a video game, it's like, "Fuck, why not? Why not go balls to the wall and go nuts?" You know? Yeah, that's but that's I'll think about that. I'm driving to work and I'm like, what am I doing, man? What am I doing? <laughs> I'm I know, building. right? Oh my god! Oh, why am I be doing this electrician thing? What am I doing? Like, oh my god! Like, sometimes I get that feeling, man. You know, dude. I, yeah, I. There, there's this quote that there's no such thing as being bored. There's just having a bored mind, right? Like, just like you mm -hmm. can't really be bored. You're having, but but there's just times where I'm just like, I, I am just bored. And I want I want to explore some crazy shit. I was listening to another, you know, I was listening to an older Joe Rogan podcast with Graham Hancock, and they were talking about how once upon a time, Terrence McKenna and his brother, they there was a period in their life where they they had a barrel of DMT. Can you imagine having a barrel of DMT? Like that is I, I that is a life. <laughs> I, so yeah you you can you can process it as as in this liquid form and i guess they just had a shit ton of it and uh, that that's like a lifetime of trips like what 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 could you uncover if you went into that dimension that many times 
You know, uh, they, 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 I, I wish I'd listened to this episode a lot earlier because it was very poignant in terms of how they discussed um, these different dimensions in regards to DMT. So we, we now know that like atoms and electrons, you know, protons, like we know that molecules exist, but for the longest time we didn't. For the longest time we called it the ether or we had some other weird made up mumbo jumbo for it. Uh, even though it's very much a real thing now, and we've proven it's a real thing, we didn't, and that affected how we went, away, we, we went about through life. Um, now that we know that it's a thing and we're able to use science and technology to, to navigate it, it's totally increased how we navigate through life. Taking that same idea into exploring these other dimensions through psychedelics, like obviously it's a very subjective experience, but you know, Graham Hancock said that what it, it's, he used the idea of perception, right? Like the psychedelics is purely a perceptional thing. When, when you are viewing something with your own eyes, you're able to validate right there that, oh yeah, this is real. But psychedelics is like looking through a telescope and then you're seeing a celestial object that you couldn't see through human eyes. Like, oh, I'm seeing a star. Just because you don't have the telescope doesn't mean the star doesn't exist anymore. So it's almost like he's prescribing that these are just tools that they, they change the way that your brain works. Like in your brain is how you're able to observe everything. Your brain, like talk, we were talking about frequency earlier, your brain cycles through these different hertz, right? We, we, we spoke on a previous episode on, on different hertz. Yo. Yo, really quick thing to touch on that. You talk about symbols. What is up with people taking psychedelics and seeing similar things? Yeah. Is or is really, you're talking about root language yeah you know what there is something to that and interestingly enough every ancient culture has their own form of symbols they see to some degree these symbols carry some type of fractal uh fractal imagery about them Mm. but it's a fractal imagery that's sort of defined or ingrained within like symbols of their own culture like you look at uh, the fractal artwork of ancient Mayan and Aztec, and it, ha- it kind of carries the same flavor. You look at like ancient Celtic symbols and imaging, it kind of carries a certain f- like flavor. Um, and I-, I think to some degree that might have to do with DNA. I really do. I think to some degree DNA affects your perception and what access you have to these other dimensions. And I, I only, I'm, I'm just spitballing here, but I have some Scottish Irish blood in me. And I took two CE once, and I, w- I was seeing all these intricate Gaelic knots just spreading all across the wall. Never had an interest in them before. Never cared to, just saw, saw them appearing, and instantly was transported to this past life where I was a Scotsman, and I was a violent bastard. I'm like, oh, well, that's fascinating. Um, I haven't seen any Asian or Korean um, theme stuff yet, but maybe because I'm not really tapped into that side of my, yeah. Yeah, the search. I haven't done that. a lot of research, no. So what's interesting about that is maybe your brain holds onto those symbols. And when you go through that, that state, it's, it's, you're going to the deep subconscious stuff that you have stored, right? And so mm. if you don't experience with it, maybe you don't have it stored in there. But yeah. what would be interesting if like, you had some random symbols pop up and some other people had some random symbols pop up that they'd never seen before. And then some other people had some random symbols pop up, you know, like people dreaming yeah. dream, writing about it. But either way, you talk about, you know, we know fractals, nature and mathematics, talk about DNA. Maybe there are fractals and like we have these similar, you know, symbols pop up when people are taking psychedelics, similar experience. 
it could be that we're all on the same wavelength, whether it's biological, um, spiritual, whatever you want to call it. Maybe there's this fractal wavelength that just, you know, it's like when artists, right? When I do art, sometimes it just comes out. Sometimes I have an idea, I'm going to do it and put it to the grindstone and I get done. But sometimes I just do something and it completely evolves out of nowhere. Like I'm tapping into something or when sports athletes are like in the zone and they're something to I'm slows down. You know, maybe there's that universal construct. that's just a big time, uh, what do you call it? Fractal. And when we get everything right, we tap into that as well. And I think we are that whether we, you know, we recognize it or not, it's everywhere at once. And it has, you know, it, um, it will, it's much like when you're looking at a, um, what is it called? Not a spectroscope, but when they can see, like they look at the light waves coming back and they see the different wavelengths popping up and they know what type of gases are coming off that yeah. star redshift. And it's kind of the same type of thing popping in and out of existence. It's always there. You know, that's the one thing that people don't really understand is that, you know, when you talk about the four fundamental forces of nature, they're everywhere, like all over the universe. These conditions exist, like we hypothesize almost everywhere, at least in our solar system on our planet, you know, and that the idea that at this very basic level, these are the rules, the root languages that are kind of going on. It's, it's so fascinating like to think that something like when you see, when you see a, like helium in a balloon, right? That helium is a particle and it's also a wave, right? And it has this bloop, it exists and doesn't exist, exists, doesn't exist, but that doesn't exist and exists. It's a potentiality, right? It's statistics. But even though like in musical notes, there's the space and then there's the note, you can't have one without the other. Yeah. And so it's always there. It's just tapping into it, you know, and you talk about that root language. I don't know. There's, there's something, there's something there. I can, I, I feel it in my gut. Yeah. Quite an interesting that when, when I've hit that state that you guys are describing, right? Being in the zone, like everything's in flow. It's, uh, you know, everything is, it's, it's almost happening magically, right? Mm. Your foot goes where it needs to go, even though you didn't have time to consciously process as you're leaping on the different stones that are, you know, wet and slippery or whatever. Um, getting out of our own way is kind of a theme, right? What is it that we're actually doing? What are we projecting out that's causing us not to be able to tap into that frequency, that source code, right? I think that's a link and a bridge with psychedelics is that uh, in my own personal experience, it's caused a lot of reasoning for me to be out of my own way. I don't have time or, you know, headspace or energy to be focused on myself when in this, you know, state of receptivity and it's beyond compare. Yeah, man. I mean, you're getting to a hierarchy of needs, right? How can mm -hmm. you be able to tap in if your basic needs aren't met? Like if you got someone trying to break into your house, are you really going to take psychedelics right before they break into your house? No, you're going to, or not even psychedelics, but like to get in a mind state where you're in the flow, right? Are you going to throw that touchdown pass? Like if that guy's breaking through your house, like door, or you, you know, you don't have a good home. I mean, there's, oh man, we could start talking about what's going on right now if you wanted to, but that to tap into that state to where that zone flow, creative inspiration, hope to tap into that state. There's definitely some processes that have to happen and it's always there, but in order to get to that vibration, it's work to be done. There's, you have to set things up, you know, and some, and is it, some go ahead. Isn't life just a deductive process we fill ourselves with all these things these things to understand but really 
what already exists already exists. And so we're reducing the blinders that have been put on, the other perceptions, the other stories that people have put on. And so as we pull back these layers, wow, I actually have more that I'm exposed to, more that I'm open to. I can perceive more, I can understand more, I can have more empathy. I had to lean back to think about that one. No, it's, yeah, yeah. Because we fill our minds, but what I hear as a common theme between both of you guys is that, you know, the, either the DNA or the mind being um, storage, being an archive, right? So I've just had this belief that I think we don't lose anything ever. Our unconscious is constantly capturing all of it. So I don't have any evidence or proof of that except my own experience that in the right state, I've been able to tap into anything that I've experienced historically, but at any given moment, I might not be able to access it, right? It's that right state at the right time. And it's usually when things are removed or, you know, I was just watching a documentary. It's called Magnetic. It's amazing on Netflix. And they go through and they start off with Portugal. They actually have the tallest wave in the world. And they show people surfing just 25 meter waves to begin the show and the documentary. And it's just insane. They've had up to um, over 100 foot swells. It's crazy. It is crazy. Uh, wait, seven foot feet or meters? What did I just say? 25 meters. Yeah. So it's, they've had ones even higher. So be exceeding 30 meters. So it's over 100 feet vertically. Um, and then at the end of it, they showed Chopo, right? In Tahiti. Are you guys familiar with that? Okay. Mm. Chopo, it actually starts with a T, but it's pronounced Cho. And Chopo has this razor sharp reef but yet it has one of the cleanest, most consistent, heaviest waves on this entire planet. Consistent barrels that just, they come at you so heavily. And they're, they're just showing this right at the end of this documentary because it's pretty much the best. And these guys are just like, every time I get out there, I, I can't, there's nothing better on earth. It's natural drugs, right? Like I'm literally tapping into the most, real state possible there's nothing else that exists and they show one of the guys when he bailed he was going up he got off the toe of his board and the wave is coming up like this and, and it crests it's it's so heavy and it's so shallow people die here all the time he got knocked down right second wave came and he's like okay i got this i'm just gonna duck under and they're freaking massive well his, his guy on the ski didn't make it to him. Third wave comes and he says, shit, pummeled, boom, gets down to the ground. He's underwater. I think it was a hundred meters that he went from where he was to uh, before he even got back up and over the water, like to be able to actually see or breathe. He remembers everything just going completely black and he gets to shore, the ski gets him. Right, his partner that's out there on the ski gets it, brings him to shore. And he's just like, oh my God, that was absolutely the scariest thing that I've ever experienced in my life. He catches his breath and he's like, okay, let's go back. <laughs> Man. Black hole saying that. <laughs> that's some crazy Damn. shit. Damn. Oh. You, 
like think about it we all experience these different points but it, it seems like uh, promise said something that was really interesting she said surfers tend to be so spiritual amen when you're at the height of aliveness and on the edge of death isn't that where you experience spirit in its finest purest form <laughs> yeah that's true dude there's a movie um have you seen the original point break I think it was Keanu Reeves and, uh, oh, it's Patrick Swayze. You seen that? Okay, so there's a new one. It's not, it's not as good, but it's interesting because it's basically these extreme sport junkie guys that go through and they're labeled as criminals. And this guy's, you know, he's an extreme sport guy, but he's FBI agent. He's tasked with bringing them down. But the movie's interesting because it's just like these guys are on the edge constantly. They're from the biggest waves, climbing the biggest, you know, sheer rock faces, skydiving, everything motorcycles cliffs yeah but that space that space in between the space man like it's funny i went i went skating uh what was it it was last week and last thursday got off work it was a super nice day and i was like what am i gonna do so i went out skating right so i put on my rollerblades and like, roller no okay i know and i went out to this park and i hadn't been there in a minute because it's been closed for a couple months and so i went out and man, I, I went out and I got the back in the flow and getting that flow state, but started trying some stuff, started falling, got a little scratched up. But the whole idea of being on that cusp and pushing it, that adrenaline of being like in that, that space, like you're talking about that teetering on the brink of destruction or something super beautiful. It's this little fragile space and it's just, it's, but it's infinite. Like it stretches out when you're there, you know, and yeah, I totally, I totally get it. And I've been surfing before and I totally, totally get the vibe. I haven't done any crazy waves just riding the board in right now. But uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's life, man. Like it's, that's in that moment, that's all there is. And that's why they keep going back. Cause but you isn't, wanna... that, isn't that true of life in general? Isn't it always just now? The only perception that we have of time is, is, you know, it's our perception of time, let's say, right? How else could time slow down or speed up? How could that happen? Oh, it's perception. I totally agree. And we put so, ourselves in that. You're right. It's a great, so like, if I... The more we stretch those moments, right? Anytime. I mean, you're on wheels. You're accelerating your being. Even when you're just running fast down a hill and you get to, like, oh, shit, I might fall over on myself right? You're skiing down something, you're snowboarding, you're biking, like accelerating anything beyond or at its, um, at its peak limit. Breakdancing. I'll bet you guys get that feeling all the time with breakdancing, huh? You know, oh, yeah. yeah. I think when Lee was talking about, you know, DNA and genetics, I think, I know for me, extreme exercise every day, something where I'm moving. I mean, if I do something really crazy, like hike 30 miles, I might take a day off and lounge around, but when I do extreme, I'm so much happier, so much more in tune. I'm a better person to be around. Like I know my, I know it. My friends know it. My family knows it. And it's like, I think there's a, there's like the being in the now, but there's also like a genetic, I think there's a genetic aspect to it. It really kind of makes you seek out those things. Cause I've gone out, you know, I, you know, I'll do like the polar plunge and I'll, I'll go see the ocean. Oh, let's go walk on the beach. And I'm like, no, I need to go in that ocean and swim. Don't care if it's January. I'm going like, I need to feel it. And I need to understand, you know, like I gotta, I gotta be one with it. And I've always felt that pull, you know, and maybe, maybe it was something I got growing up as a kid, but I just, I, it's every fiber of my being is just like, you gotta go. You have, 
gotta do it gotta push it you know like so the that's, the, that's the rick and morty episode you just described you take off the helmet where's my family wait a second what am i doing that's yeah. what you're describing when we get to those states which we can access through so many different methods yeah. whatever it is for each person where you just push yourself beyond so that you feel that aliveness right you have to stretch beyond in order to feel it and like but you're what, saying polar plunge that's a great way to feel alive because you can't live in that environment you cannot live there our bodies will not take it so you jump in and everything's like ah! and then you must get out but you might want to go back in right experience that stretch again over and over and then you can stretch beyond i think there's also genetic memory too passed on from your ancestors obviously you know like i think there could be fight or flight could be some survival scenarios that you're trying to emulate because your dna is like hey man you know your ancestors survived this by doing that and so you're going to want to do some similar movement or some similar pattern like my dad was a jumper, right? In track, did all the jumping events. And I watched him growing up as a kid. And lo and behold, I did it. My grandfather's also like an athlete, also in the military. So there's this high level of, uh, not just competition, but just pressing the body. And for whatever reason, like I said before, it just, it, it just makes me feel great. You know, and I think it makes a lot of people feel great. You know, but like I said, there's, there's people that go free dive, you know, and there's stuff that they do holding their breath for minutes and minutes and, you know, stuff I, you know, I'd have to really work up. Maybe I wouldn't want to do. I think, I definitely think there's a, like a genetic kind of predisposition for people to want to go out and seek that. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Is it the principle then you're just pushing beyond your comfort zone? You're getting to the next level, the next echelon, like you just described, you know, free diving. I would have to work up to that. I've got to build up to those levels. So isn't that the experience of life? I mean, Lee, episode one, you said, I don't think it's possible to experience all that life has to offer in just one of these lifetimes. Oh, totally. No way. Yeah, you would need every single life ever lived combined to have a snapshot of the human experience. But even then, that wouldn't be enough. I don't think, I don't think it's possible. There's just too yeah. much to do. It's a lot. Okay, so then how do you guys make your decisions about what to do? Ah, it's a good question. Um, I have been searching and searching and searching, and I, this kind of ties back to a previous concept I've talked about how, at least from this, and this is my own belief, my own take, my own observation, but there is one driving force that all biological life stands behind, even just microbes, and that is pleasure and pain in how that takes shape as a human that gets a lot more complex there's many different ways a human being can derive pleasure um <clears throat> i i think from the from the human perspective i i still really like to go back to the concept of like maslow's hierarchy of needs there there are these levels and and you and i also had also talked in a previous episode about some other system that you would do you remember do you remember that that color scale that you talked about what was yeah. the name of that system? Yeah, it's um, it's uh, spiral dynamics. Spiral dynamics, yes. An another form of how, uh, as as you know, as, as a human being or a society, you get more and more of your basic needs met. You get your emotional needs met. You get your whatever you need to survive and thrive. You start seeking more complex forms of driving pleasure. Something, uh, you know, like a, a person who's like a master musician who's like 
trying to play this really complex piece on on his instrument, his or her instrument, they're doing so because there's some type of pleasure that's derived, but they couldn't do so if they didn't have their basic needs met to some degree. So there's this, it's, it's emotion, like emotion, energy and motion. We base all of our, all of our decisions on emotion. Logic is there just to supplement the emotional part. If I do a, if I, if I, you know, if I, if I do this task, it's going to give me the resources I need to do this because it gives me pleasure. That's basically it. It's the pleasure and pain principle. That's kind of where I stand. Uh, I, I think how that journey takes place is just, it's going to vary from individual to individual. Some people yeah. who might have a real deep interest in the, their internal world, they derive pleasure from new enlightenment, from new uncoveries of journeys mm. within. Um, some that are purely external facing. I have friends that are very external, like they derive pleasure off of how much money they accumulate and how much material possessions they gain. Nothing wrong with that at all because they sincerely enjoy that form of life. There are others who are quite the opposite. They work really hard to discover these very subjective truths and, and feelings and, and unique experiences that no one else can ever discover. And that, that gives them great pleasure and joy. It's like we're all a bunch of Spotify playlists. We all have different algorithms. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dude, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. If A happens, then B will happen and all these things go through. I mean, it's, yeah. And so you think funny. about the music genome, like what a beautiful gift to humanity that is. Yeah. Find the chords and strings, the nuanced distinctions that tie things together so Spotify can create these algorithms and pay attention to what we listen to and what we like and how long and what our friends listen to. And then give us daily mixes. Thank you, Spotify. <laughs> Thank you, Spotify. Yeah. Kind of scary. That's the automation tip, though. But go ahead, Grace. It's only scary to me because you have our basic desires and pleasures. Elon Musk talked about this, but your basic desires and pleasures are being monitored on a constant basis. Mm -hmm. And once we get that mesh in our head and they can deliver you the perfect sonnet, the perfect thing, perfect virtual girlfriend, perfect whatever, you know, are you going to want to leave? If it's hitting all those, you know, neuroreceptors, you're getting all the dopamine and serotonin, right? You know, yes, are you going to Yes, if. If you're an externally driven person, then I imagine you would be more inclined to want to stay in that world. If you're an internally driven person, then I imagine that the, the overall, like, because pleasure doesn't feel good unless we experience pain. We have to have that contrast. We have to have the other side in order to really appreciate it, don't you think? Yes yeah. and no. But what if you can't tell no. the difference between reality and what the virtual is? Yeah, so I'm actually going to add a caveat to that. Here's the thing about human nature. And this, we don't know, like, and this, this is a question that maybe the Neuralink will help us uncover. But something that's built into our nature, and I don't know if it's biological or if it's, or if it's spiritual, is that we as human beings, we derive pleasure from things that are novel, always. Even in hedonism, I'm not going to lie, man, I had a really tough upbringing. I had a really tough upbringing, and uh, since I um, since I didn't have much in my life in terms of uh, uh, like what was available to me, now that I'm an adult and I, I have like time and space and enough finances to, to give myself the kind of life that I want, 
I've had some intense periods as of late, not, not like super recent, but like of just hedonism, buying all my favorite foods, doing all my favorite things, indulging, indulging, indulging. And I've actually started to hit some brick walls in my hedonism. <laughs> A lot of things that have given me pleasure in the past no longer give me pleasure. And that's, that's fine. That's a blessing. That's a good thing, right? Otherwise, we'd be stuck in these cycles. Not, you, can't do, you can't do the same thing twice and have the same reaction. Mm. Is that a biological thing or is that a human nature thing? So if we have this neural link established, right? Like, so sci science will tell you that when you do something, the, the pathway between your neurons, the pathway gets thicker and thicker, essentially. That's how you're able to build a skill, or that's how you develop a habit, both good and bad, is that these neuron pathways that, that create, uh, that basically, in a sense, is its own algorithm of, of the series of actions. Like, let's say I like to uh, eat a certain food, like spaghetti. Spaghetti is my favorite food. It, it, it highlights almost really? the same region of... It is, actually. It's one of my favorite foods. Uh, my, my tastes have evolved since then, but <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I love spaghetti. Um, what do you love about spaghetti? Now, before we get into that, it's just like the levels, though, right? Because what I, what I am reading into your future, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is that the things you used to love, they uh, just, you know, I, I've had, if you eat lobster every day, it's your favorite food. It's just lobster, it's just food, right? So then you're going up to more and more complexity, going right back to what you were just describing earlier on the emotional scale. Everything that we're doing, we need more complexity or more nuances, right? So it's either more uh, refinement or more uh, macro distinctions to keep yeah. us re-engaged. So as you described yeah. spaghetti, I imagine when you first ate a bite of spaghetti and you were like, this is amazing. But then now you're like, <laughs> Oh, it was the noodle texture. Like, it, you know, we had these wide flat noodles and it was amazing. And the, the way the sauce came together and, you know, there was this note of rosemary in there and, you know, thyme and like, right? Yeah. Yeah. Good oh, point. Yeah. Mm. Lot I need to take you, by the way. It's in Portland. It's really, really good Italian. It's like, it's, it used please, to be please. a street. I will take you there. It's awesome. Please do. Yo, I'm super down. Yeah, but I, I'm curious. So, you know, going back to that example, though, like how your neurons thicken, that's a biological response. Will that same type of behavior happen in the VR world? That's where it gets interesting. Yeah, of course it would. Why wouldn't it? Because we're still experiencing it. So our brains would be having the same, you know, if, if right now virtual reality with broken frames and pixelation and limited perspective is already being perceived at over 90% accuracy of real life in tests, Mm. like already low resolution 1200 by 800 pixels or whatever it's not even 1080p it's not even 4k you know we're not even talking about spherical vision microsoft's yeah. uh, hololens is like it's narrow the actual um you know field of view but yet the experience that somebody has of, of augmented reality being able to you know hold the tool in their hand as they're taking apart the engine or move around an organ that they're about to go do surgery on like the, the way that our brains are already registering that is in the high 90s right now and it is just barely started highly adaptive and all around stuff um yeah it's interesting you talk about that i was actually just uh, 
I've been working on it. I'm not good at it at all, but I've been working on like an Arnold Schwarzenegger voice impression. Not when he's like screaming. When he's talking. Oh, let's I can't, hear it. I'm not, not going <laughs> to need more practice. I'll do it in another podcast right now. But anyway, and I can do it at work because it's super loud. Nobody can hear me anyway. But <laughs> what I was going to say is though, when you, you start to do, like, you get into voice acting, doing people's voices impersonations, if you can actually mimic it just enough and you know the mannerisms or a, a type of intonation, certain aspects, you don't have to get 100%. You can do, you know, 75, 80, 90. I mean, you can do less than that. If you go into a drunk bar and you're like, you know, just starting to spout something off and it's just enough to click people's interest and you're just above that threshold, you can totally dial it in. Now, if you're standing in that same bar next to Arnold Schwarzenegger to try doing that actual impression, it's not going to work. You have to be 100% at that point. But it's all about reference frames. And Lee, you were talking about spaghetti. You know, when I eat food and I have the same thing, you can do the same thing over and over and over lobster. And it's like, oh, it's lobster. You know, but then you go have spaghetti. And you're like, oh, fuck spaghetti. You know, Fucking and then spaghetti. you go a month without having lobster. And all of a sudden someone cooks up that lobster and you smell it. And you're going, it's like the brain has to reset, you know, the same thing over and over. You know, there's part of me that thinks it might have to do and evolutionary wise, like we were hunter and gatherers, like you wanted differentiation. And that's why it stimulates you. But there's also those mm -hmm. things that are really good. Like, oh my God, somebody has got a deer. I can smell it over there on the spigot. Let's go over there and get some. It smells amazing, you know? But I don't know. It's an, it's, it's, it's an interesting thought. But I think as far as like the simulation or a video game or, you know, virtual reality, what you're talking about, Tyler, I think that you're right. It only has to be at 90% because your brain's going to adapt. We're going to round it off. It's going to fit, you know, it's going to fit in all that information. It's going to, you know, figure it out for you. You know, complete the picture, complete the puzzle without all the pieces. So, yeah. yeah. Very bizarre. Yeah. How much have yeah. we already just referenced Google, right? Or, or Google's an archetype right? as a concept. I mean, you could use DuckDuckGo or whatever you feel like, right? Firefox in private mode. <laughs> <laughs> I know how you are, Lee. Grayson, there's a great episode that we did around, I think it was seven. And yeah. it was uh, having to do with crypto. And some of the, uh, it was a very uh, tinfoil hat episode. Yeah. <laughs> you described it. It was fantastic. I can't wait to roll that one out. Uh, <laughs> but it's amazing, though. Like, we already live in such an augmented nature. I mean, even something as simple as, you know, I have a pen and I have, you know, pages of notes, which you may or may not be able to see. Um, and I'm augmenting my brain's ability to hold on to something. Grayson, you did this earlier you wrote down stuff to where even 20, 30 minutes later, you're able to draw that bridge back into the conversation, string it all together by augmenting yeah. something to draw yeah. symbols Yes. to then get to source. I know, external brain, right? Secondary brain, augmented brain, totally, totally. I mean, that's what, that's what, what are books, right? You can read something from someone that's been dead for a thousand years, you know? That's, that's amazing. That's taking, putting it out there. Connectivity, you know? Yeah, man. I'm all for it. It's great. It's terrifying, but it's great. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So Lee, happen. you did ask that question though, um, around how our brains would adapt with VR, et cetera. Yeah. What, what is your underlying question around that? Like, what is it that when you look into, you know, I'm going to call it the future, but you know, just, like yeah. 10 years or something. When I talked about how that principle of novelty and how like things can like quote unquote lose their flavor 
I talked about how like, because to some degree, you're experiencing a biological effect of those neurons thickening and you're not deriving as much dopamine over time. Will that same behavior replicate in the VR world in the sense of not, not like you're putting on a VR helmet, but like your consciousness is actually in a VR world. Uh, I'm just hypothesizing on the functionality of the Neuralink, but if with the Neuralink, if you can maybe like experience yourself like in a digital version, will that digital version of yourself uh, allow you to experience what dopamine would be over and over again as much as you want reliving the same moment over and over again without, without well, losing its flavor? Look at Avatar. Isn't that a prime example? I mean, he had no legs. He opts in this blue seven foot yeah. eight alive thing and has a tail. He could then That's plug true. into the tree, right? And you could actually, the tree of souls, you could, you could hear ancestors. You could feel the connection with everything. You know, when they say, I see you, it's not, I'm observing you. It's, I feel you. I understand you. I see your soul. But yet that was a machine, right? It was an organic machine that he was placed into. Yeah. And luckily his consciousness at the very end got to go into it, you know, and he had to have got this new body. I mean, that's Sigourney. The, uh, she just didn't she quite. She tried, man. She survived a lot of those alien movies, though. I think she's okay. Yeah. But uh, I was going to say, though, that's, I think that's a really positive end of the spectrum. Now, if you want to look at like a flip side of that, imagine you go on VR. I mean, think about like phone addiction right now. Now you go on VR and you're getting your dopamine, you're getting your you know, serotonin. You, you want those hits. You want those likes, right? Now imagine when you're immersed and you can see people. Holy shit. Like that's, whoo, then it's like, now think about this. You start adding genetic engineering into that. You talk to Avatar, they may have an Avatar body. People might be like, I don't want a body. I just really want my, I want my, uh, I want my dopamine receptors tuned up. I want like the super dopamine receptors. I want the steroid dopamine receptor. I mean, look what we did with steroids. All the whole branch of, you know, bodybuilding and all that stuff. I mean, it's not, all of it's not bad, but there's definitely, I mean, if you look at some of the bodybuilders now, like what's going on, all this stuff going on with the brain. You know, think about the evolutionary process. We've come to this point and now we have all this sensory information. Now it's changing. And I'm not saying this is bad. I'm just saying, let's, let's look at this. So now you start engineering people for this experience and you're already doing it by them having that experience. It's the whole part of evolution slowly doing that or quickly, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. But, but you start getting these people and eventually I think we're just going to be with the VR. There's definitely going to be some people out there. It's just a head that kind of gets sucked into this like, this uh what do you call it this cyborg state where there's the head living in this vr tube and it's got enough nutrients and then it just becomes his brain it's attached and it's a brain brain with electrical impulse pulses in it and then eventually it kind of absorbs and becomes the same kind of the same thing almost like a slime mold and it becomes this whole entity i don't know i i see like i see this stuff kind of like in comic book form and i'm kind of putting it out in my head right now but uh and, have you seen uh, cloudy see, with a chance of meatballs i've heard of it I haven't seen it. It's a great movie. It's a kid's movie. It's an yeah. animated thing. But yeah. that's actually one of the experiences is people are, they're very large. They're physically very large people, um, like obese. Uh, they're plugged into their VR and they're rolling around like this in their virtual world, like bumping into people, drinking, you know, their sodas this big, <laughs> right? Because again, where is your consciousness? Is your consciousness in this reality or is it another and if if we actually on a, a nervous system and spiritual level can't decipher between the two then is there any difference between the two 
And somebody that is interested in their body and this physical experience might have resistance there and, and say, oh, I can, I can hang out in the digital world or whatever, VR world, but I, I want to come back in and I want to go and run. I want to feel my lungs actually go through that experience. Um, now, I, I guess that was actually a, it's a fairly short-sighted version because with Neuralink and other concepts like that plugging into our brain, it's just electrical impulses. They can stimulate any of it. They can give us the perception that we were just running up a hill or when you're, you're skydiving, you actually have the exact sensory experience. They in my head. <laughs> I want me in my head. We're having that right now. <laughs> we are in different physical geographies by a long ways, and yet we're instantaneously communicating. We have different arenas that we're playing in. Lee sometimes shows up as a human-like thing, other times as a, a vibrant triangle uh, pyramid-shaped structure. <laughs> <laughs> but I can turn it off, man. I can turn the phone off. What's that? I can turn the phone off. Ah, uh, so that's the distinction is, is whether you can turn it off or not. But then it's just the matrix, Bro. right? Bro. We're living in the matrix. And if you have source code, you realize it and you can adjust and you can adapt. And one could say that source code is even something in any, any sort of augmentation, a book, uh, Google search, right? Anything like that where you can download really quick. Like Lee, you were able to look up a concept and all of a sudden we have imagery, we have videos, we have descriptions, we have an organized hierarchy and a structure so that we can digest and assimilate that information ridiculously fast. Ridiculously fast, yeah. You know, tying back in that idea of cultural diffusion, the spread of ideas, it's happening at the speed of light now, all the time, everywhere, every second, every nanosecond. People are constantly uh, coming up with ideas, searching up ideas, combining those ideas. Shit's getting wild, son. So then the question is, right now, do you guys have as much fun in this kind of a virtual environment hanging out as we do when we're all actually hanging out in person? It's different. It's different. It's yeah. more doubt. It's what? I'm looking, I'm looking this way. There's nothing externally. I literally have a black sheet up and I'm looking straight into the screen and I can see you guys. So it's like if we were having a conversation and we just sat looking at each other this same way, we should try it sometime. We should seriously, when we all meet up, let's all sit this way and we're going to have about the same amount of distance from our faces as our phones or our computers. And we're just going to sit there and do our conversation. No, we're not. Yes, we are. You might, but <laughs> I mean, dude, you feel energy. Uh, there's a, uh, what is it? Is it Solsara? Um, Lee, are you familiar with that, that group? They do a bunch of stuff in Portland in different areas. Um, they do some of these exercises to uh, kind of bridge the gap of emotional um, beingness or distance. And so one of the exercises is you, you hold somebody's hands, right? And, and this is a total stranger at this point. And so there's like, like at the gathering I was at, there was like 20 people and it's popcorn style. And they say, okay, so, you know, everybody just kind of walk around and do your thing. And then until you stop and, you know, you just find somebody and you hold their hands and you look them directly in the eyes. One person says nothing. And the other person describes what they're feeling. Huh. Then you do it again, right? And again, and you take the same perspective. So you're not sharing, right? You're just listening at that point. 
and then you switch and you end up sharing, right? And you can share about the other person or you can share about your experience of that person and it goes through these different levels. And I gotta tell you, that time when I was just sitting there like holding a stranger's hand, right? Stranger, a friend you haven't met yet, but another person's hands in that physical proximity, just like looking and listening and not being able to give feedback or anything. It was so long, like that was an expansion of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's trippy. So, but think about from an evolutionary perspective, if you were to actually be that close to somebody face to face for that long and you're not you know, mating with them, there's a good chance you might be fighting. And so your brain stretches out that time because, you know, you get into fight or flight, that things can really stretch out. So you that's know? parasympathetic nervous system training. That makes so much sense. They didn't introduce anything like that. That's, that's a technology at that point. You want to train your nervous system to get outside of fight or flight. Try this strategy and leave comments. Let us know how it goes. Oh, why, yeah. do you why do you think public speaking like terrifies people? Because they don't want to be in front of a bunch of people because that could be a mob. They could rip me limb from limb. Like, and everyone, Whoa. the teachers are high school, they could be like, they would tell us, be like, oh, don't be afraid, you know? It's all, it's fine. Don't just relax. Just imagine everybody in their underwear. It's like, no, you understand there's a group of people I'm literally addressing that could, they could turn on me at any moment. I mean, that's like deep, deep reptilian part, you know? And like, we're, we're yeah. still thing with that. And that's why that exercise you did, Tyler, like you talk about stuff getting stretched out, you know, because yeah, I mean, I, I work on a job, so, you know, I work in construction. It's like, I can't help it. I size people up. I do it like every time I'm around, I, it's automatic. It's not because I'm trying to be judgy or I don't like somebody. It's just like, Oh, that guy probably weighs about 250, And he, you know, f you know, he could probably get me and uh, probably gonna have to go for the knees or I'm going to run over that way. And it's just, I, tr I, I don't even think about it. It just pops into my head, you know, Grayson, this is why we train ninjutsu. It's been a, <laughs> it's been a while, but I mean, I I'm, I know I'm not the only one. Yeah, it's interesting. That sounds like a really cool exercise. I would actually really like to do that. That'd be that would be wonderful. That's wonderful. It kind of reminds me of like when you take a salsa class, and you go, and the best the best way to take a salsa class is just go by yourself. You know, don't go with a group of friends because you don't know anybody, and you learn so much because you just you're dancing with a stranger, you know, and sometimes like. And I mean, you really want to dance with, or maybe it is, but at the same time, it's completely random. And you talk about going back to eating that lobster, that spaghetti, you're creating those neural connections in the brain. That uncomfortability is what allows you to become more comfortable with it yourself. And that's what allows for growth. Yes. Yes. So, Amen. Yeah. Give me a second. Sorry. Josh can't. Anyway. But, I think well, that, this that might... seems like a good logical conclusion, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think that might be a good place yeah. to bookmark this one. That I think I just ending. read Lee's mind there. <laughs> That's a good closing statement. So it is Solsara. It's S-O-L-S-A-R-A. Solsara. You want to look it up? Yep. And just right on their homepage, they've got some sacred geometry and say the practice of opening. That's what it's about. Cool. Solsara. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Fascinating. Uh, definitely there's groups in Portland. I'm not sure if they extend elsewhere, but feel free to check it out if you're interested. Dude, so totally, totally. What are our big takeaways here from symbols? Whoo. I'd say, uh, where's the root? Mm. 
Where's the roots? Definitely inspires inspires curiosity. Yeah. Roots to the fruits. Roots to the fruits. Dot com. Interesting. Um, so my, my takeaway is from this, I mean, this is a wide ranging conversation, um, but symbols are, um, are means of us connecting with our outside world. So whether it's each other or our experiences um, in general and the meaning behind different symbols connects to our emotion, which connects to what we do. So if the symbols that you want are something like the feeling of well-being, you're going to make certain actions in this world versus, you know, if, if the feeling that you want is leave me alone. I just want to, <laughs> I just want my own space. Don't talk, don't touch me, don't talk to me, you know, you're going to have different actions. And so the symbols actually drive behavior. They drive how we interact with each other, but interaction and the way that we perceive the world in our interaction with that. Enough said. I agree. Enough said. Sprinkle a little bit of quantum mechanics and some black hole theory and some superconductivity. And I think we just covered it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Thank you, guys. Until next time. Yes, until next time. Until next time, guys. Salud. Salud. Salud.